Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel, and on today's New Statesman podcast, I'm joined by Rob Burley, editor of Beth Rigby Interviews on Sky News, former BBC head of political programming, and author of the new book, Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? Searching for the Truth on Political TV. Thank you so much for joining us. First question. The book is called Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? It is, which has <laughs> um, created a few problems on some television programmes. I can imagine, not on the New Statesman podcast. <laughs> Good. Why is it called that and what does that quote mean? Okay, so it's called that because two reasons. One, that statement was made famously by Jeremy Paxman. He didn't originate it. The quote came from, a, I think it was a guy called Louis Heron, who was a, a journalist in The Times way back in, the, in, I don't know quite when, but it was a long time ago. And he, Paxman had heard that quote and delivered it when he was asked about his attitude to political interviews, when he was emerging as a kind of figure on Newsnight in the late 80s. So it's famous, and it's a good title, right? (laughs) (laughs) But also, I think it it clearly taps into what people feel, which is that they are lied to routinely by politicians on programmes. Not necessarily a barefaced lie, an evasion, sticking to a formula of an answer that doesn't tell them anything. They're treated like fools. and, And I'm afraid what was a proud tradition really in Britain of political interviews has fallen into kind of a slightly depressing place right now I would say and we need to revive it and this is a forlorn hope and attempt to do that via a book. (laughs) We'll go into kind of where we've ended up Mm -hmm. in a minute but you have worked on political interviews and you have been obsessed with political interviews for many years many yes. decades can we say some decades sound very sad now yeah <laughs> since about since sometime probably sometime in the 1970s probably wow okay so what in your mind constitutes a really powerful hard-hitting political interview what skills does the interviewer need what are they trying to achieve i think now now the hard-hitting is, it suggests a particular approach right i think what, what they're trying to reach the truth is my slightly high-minded way of putting it. And, I, and one, of the, one of the approaches I try to apply to interviews is we ask ourselves, what is the truth before we go into the interview? So they're trying to get to reveal something about the character or the policy positions of an important person whose decisions and whose approaches are going to affect the lives of the people watching. And obviously that takes skill. Now, there's different ways of doing that. One is to open them up. If you are encountered by that rare thing these days, Although you might find them on podcasts these days, which is a politician in a mode of actual openness and kind of willingness to engage, then that's one way. The other way is to sort of Andrew Neil them, which is to have an argument, have a clear amount of evidence that's going to support your argument and invite them to engage in that argument and then see if they can either deal with the problems or 
in your sort of fantasy world, although it did happen famously with Boris Johnson and Andrew Neil in 2019, fold and accept that they have been come a cropper. So there's two different ways of doing it. I don't think one is better than the other in the sense that I don't think we're, I'm not, even though there are incredibly exciting and enjoyable moments in political interviews of theatre and heat and kind of drama, actually more importantly is we we reestablish that we we do these interviews and that we welcome also meaning, meaningful and thoughtful engagement. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. It also feels somewhat idealistic in our present age but we'll come on to that the first couple of chapters of the book actually aren't about a political interview that you worked on at all they're about an interview in 1989 Mm. with margaret thatcher and brian walden you spend like quite a lot of time on that particular interview why is that one so important and why is it the starting point of the book in a way the starting point is a slightly different thing which is the starting point in a sense is the morning in 2019 when Boris Johnson hides in a fridge. (laughs) Yes. You may remember that, which was emblematic, not just of... It was emblematic because there had been another occasion within a few days previously when he'd effectively decided he would definitely not be doing the interview with Andrew Neil. So he was in hiding in fridge mode at that point. He was hiding from scrutiny. This was a visit to a dairy. A a dairy, yes, in Pudsey, where my dad was born. I'd say that because he's no longer here and, and I wish he could read my book. Yeah, so that's where he was when he did that. The point about that is... We've gone from, we, that was where we were, where we are now, which is a man who hides in a fridge. Where we had been in 1989, and possibly the most, what is essentially the Frost Nixon of British political interviews, is we'd been in a situation where the Prime Minister of the day had lost her Chancellor. So she was in the biggest political crisis of her premiership at that point. And she went on to tele- onto a television programme and spent 46 minutes speaking to the, one of the toughest interviewers we've ever had, which is which tells you something, which tells you that we've... I'll keep coming back to now. That tells you the, the arc of this story. So in a way, that was the high watermark of a commitment to the democratic kind of ideals of accountability and explaining yourself and engagement. And it went very badly wrong for her, but it was to her credit that she took part in it in that way. But the other bit about it, which you'll have read, and hopefully that would have been engaging, is the kind of backstory to it, which is... Extra- well, they were friends. Yeah, it's so interesting. They were friends and they were ideological bedfellows. Brian Walden was a Labour MP, but was quite quickly disillusioned with socialism and was really a meritocrat, more of a kind of equality of opportunity rather than outcome. And so he found Thatcherism quite appealing. Yeah, it was Thatcher curious when she starts to emerge in the mid 70s. Love that. Thatcher curious. Okay. (laughs) And there was talk of him crossing the floor even. But before that could happen, in 1977, two years after she became leader of the Conservative Party, he, you know, a kind of unusual, unexpected move, became the new presenter of Weekend World, which was, for people who won't remember this, it was an ITV show. It was incredibly high-minded. It's just extraordinary that it was on ITV for an hour. It would feature a very dense piece of analysis for 20 minutes on film or delivered by the presenter, followed by a sort of an interview of something like 40 minutes. And Brian was brought from the Commons, who, where he'd been a great orator, to become this interviewer. And so in a way, these two people came together on television and personally, they became friends and they became ideologically close. And they had these conversations, which I've been rewatching because that's how I roll, but even after the book, there's these amazing conversations where actually in real time, they're sketching out things about ideas about, but they couldn't be, Mrs. Thatcher did not stand up in 1977 and say, we must break union power in, in, in the UK, but she did tentatively edge towards it. And Brian would just take her along the path a little bit further and we'd learn something and we'd, surmise something from their interactions at the same time he was spending social time with her and that only increased when she became prime minister and the most amazing thing about this closeness was that in 1983 
So in, on one morning in 1983, in June, just before the election of 1983, he interviewed Mrs. Thatcher in Downing Street as the impartial ITV Weekend World presenter. And then about 12 hours later, he was called upon in an emergency, really, by the Tory party or by senior MP Ian Gow, who was her, and worked with her very closely, and said, they said, we need someone to rewrite our final appeal to the country for a second term for Thatcher. Can you do it, Brian? At which point, Brian should really have said, thank you for asking, but no, I'm a journalist. I'll be holding her to account again after, she, after the election if she wins. Instead, he said yes. And that was how close he'd become. He actually pens the final word she offers to the country that, that, in that election campaign. And that closeness was established. And then without going into all the twists and turns, you get to 1989. And Mrs. Thatcher loses her chancellor. This interview is planned, pre-planned, and it's going to go ahead. And for many in the sort of commentariat, there were great doubts that Brian was the man to do this interview because this was her most vulnerable moment, the moment of reckoning. You don't want Brian to do it because Brian, we all know Brian and Margaret are very close. He's seen as her pet interviewer, yeah. her pet journalist. Exactly. And in a way he was, but although I really want to emphasize this, he wasn't soft on her. He, he made her say things that were interesting and opened her up and we learned a lot about her philosophy. So it was, it was valuable, but it, wasn't, it was never combative or sort of difficult for her as such. But this demanded something else. For Brian, having made the bad choice in 1983, he had another choice to make in 1989. And the people he worked with, I've spoken to at the time, there's differing views, but certainly his closest sort of confidant and executive producer called David Cox said it was a real dilemma for him. He didn't know which way to jump, friendship and ideological kind of bedfellows or journalism. And he went for journalism in the end, either for noble reasons or because it was good for Brian in the end because he was quite a competitive man. And this interview was... Um, it's hard to overstate the impact of the interview. It humiliated her. Yeah, in a sense it did. But the first thing it did, and this is you're talking about my tragic uh, devotion to these things at a very early age. I was 20 when that one went out, so I was an old hand at these things by that point. But I remember watching and thinking, here's a woman who's, and I came from a Labour household, she's dominated a my, 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 part of my life in a sense because she's been this huge figure with, who's apparently impossible to dislodge and never shows weakness. And the weakness was on display. The chink in the armour was there. And she didn't convince him. And then he went further, which was another thing that was very much in the air in those days was the idea that, and this is something we wouldn't put in these terms now, but that she was mad in some way, that Mrs. Thatcher was in some way off her trolley, which was how he expressed it to her. Lost her grip on reality. Yeah. I mean, you remember that, you won't remember, but you'll have seen the moment when she said, we have become a grandmother. Yeah. That was, a, what? And so he, said, he raised this in the interview. So he actually said to the prime minister on air, you seem to have, many people think you're off your trolley. So this was very hard for her. And she, I think one thing I found very enjoyable in writing was imagining what she thought was going to happen and what he thought was going to happen when this interview unfolded. She thought she'd get Brian. This is Brian who I've known for all these years. And of course, he'll ask me questions about Nigel Lawson. That'll be something I'll have to deal with. But he won't go on about it. He won't be unfair. And another thing about her that was becoming an increasing problem because of the poll tax principally was this sense that she had she never allowed alternative views even into the room she couldn't have those conversations and he in the past had defended her against that accusation yet here he was making that accusation to her on television and there's a moment a brilliant moment when he says all this and she says you're the one that's being very domineering and she says something along the lines of why can't we just have a normal conversation <laughs> almost like you can feel it like knowing what i know now is like, brian and that's just it's playing out so the human drama of that is extraordinary and then after the event they went to the green room and had a chat about 
German reunification for a bit, and then they never spoke again. That was the end of their relationship. And a year later, she was gone. It's a really interesting, powerful example to set off this discussion of the role of journalists in challenging politicians in this way. Obviously, you go all the way from that Mm -hmm. to Boris Johnson hiding in a fridge. Yes. In the later part of the book, these are interviews that you worked on and helped plan Mm -hmm. and helped research. And there are... Boris Johnson is a pretty major figure. For good or ill. (laughs) (laughs) But there are two two clashes with Boris Johnson and Andrew Neil, one of which happens and one of which yeah. doesn't happen. If we start with the one that does happen, yes. I think the chapter is called 5C. And this is... It's an unpromising title for a chapter. Right? <laughs> it's intriguing. It's an intriguing <laughs> ca- chapter. I mean, Boris famously is impossible to pin down mm-hmm. by, by anyone. Although I saw Mary Beard try once when, yeah. she, when they were doing a debate on Greece versus Rome way back in the sunny era where that was the kind of thing that he used to do but why is that chapter called 5c what happens in that interview and why is it important okay so that it's called 5c it's really boris's fault or sorry johnson's fault that that 5c becomes so prominent here's the thing so you're talking about nailing him down what we did before that interview this this is the leadership contest yes i'm sorry yeah the 2019 leadership contest so it's come down to him versus jeremy hunt Uh, and the conversation is obviously all about brexit and it's all about the prospect of a no deal brexit what that would mean. And we, what we decided, we, a routine thing you do is you just study the, the formulas that these people would be using in all the other interviews they've done before your interview. What does he tend to go to? There are a number of things in the interview. He always tended to talk about crime figures, even though it was irrelevant to what we were talk, that was being discussed because he thought he had a good story to tell. So we made sure we could take that down, which the we did. Crime figures while he was London Mayor. Sorry, while he was London Mayor, I should be clearer, yes. So in other words, an irrelevant point, but one he could deploy to suggest that he was effective. And we made we actually it didn't stand up to any scrutiny because actually the crime figures had fallen in London, although by a smaller amount than they'd fallen in the rest of the country. It's an aside, but the point I'm making there is he had a, he had very clear things that he would go to try and put move the thing onto the conversation onto his own terms. So on on No Deal Brexit, he went to the GATT agreement from 1947. Again, very unpromising, but this was it's almost like here's this student in his seminar. He's a bit of a hangover, but he knows that he knows about 5B in the GATT Treaty of 1947. He knows that one and it helps his argument. And so far throughout the campaign, that had been enough to get him through that conversation. This is an answer he can use when they say, how would you deal with a no deal Brexit? And he goes, oh, it's all here in this obscure treaty that I've read and I've studied, but you haven't. It's all there in Article something, Paragraph 5B. Precisely so. Yeah, it, it basically says we'll be able to trade on the same terms if we fall into a no deal. That's how that could be applied. You don't want to do that with Andrew Neil, okay? (laughs) If that's what you think you're going to do. And the beauty of it, it's a wonderful moment because, so obviously we invite him down the road that's called 5B. Come along, Boris, come and dance down this road and it'll be wonderful for you because you know how to deal with this. So he comes along and he starts talking about it. And then Andrew Neil makes a, a slight, has a slight slip of the tongue and reverses the paragraph with the article or whatever it is. And Boris is delighted at this moment because he can say, get across the detail. I'm telling Andrew yeah. Neil to get across the detail. Boris Johnson telling Andrew Neil that. <laughs> and he just, he's just, he's, as I say in the book, he's like, I'm besting him. I'm the one knocking this out of the park. But of course, we wanted him, that was a mistake, Andrew's mistake, but it did help build the hubris level. So then we get to the moment when Andrew lets him settle down again and says, what about 5C? Now, 5C, 
without going into detail, presents a more complex picture than 5B about how you would deal with a no-deal Brexit. But it, that's irrelevant because we know that he doesn't know what's in it. He hasn't read it. Of course he hasn't read it. Because he, it like I say, it's the seminar boy. It's the sort of get away with it, just do the bare minimum, appear to be plausible. So, And some people think that was just a gotcha moment because it was trying to take him down the path and then into the bear trap he falls. However, it wasn't because it was revealing something important, which is that he's not across the detail. Support him if you want, but don't have any illusions. He knows what he's talking about. You may... This is, remember, this is the Tory membership's voting. You may in, enjoy his personality or his buccaneering spirit or whatever it is, but don't imagine he knows what's going on with 5B and 5C. And that's a rare thing, a rare thing to plan something like that and for it actually to happen on air. And, and normally there's the battle plan and then there's the battle. But on that occasion, it, it came off beautifully. But I fear that once that happened... He wasn't going to do it again. He wasn't going to do it again, which leads you to, I think, your next question. My, my next question, <laughs> which is the interview that... Yeah. didn't happen and this is one that is quite interesting because unintentionally you personally became a character in this mm -hmm. so this is the run-up to the 2019 general election yeah. Boris Johnson against Jeremy Corbyn and all of the party leaders Corbyn, Joe Swinson, Nigel Farage, Nicola Sturgeon mm. will do the big Andrew Neil interview yeah. on the BBC the half hour being grilled by him and it goes pretty badly for all of them, but particularly badly for Corbyn. Boris Johnson refuses to do it. Labour accused the BBC of being biased and allowing him to get away with it mm -hmm. or misleading them into thinking that Johnson was definitely going to do it. So Corbyn had to do it. You take a lot of vitriol on Twitter mm -hmm. for this misstep. What what actually happened? What's okay. the inside story of this? Okay, so the inside story is that, first of all, it's not just, it, this is about Andrew Neil doing big interviews. This, for as long as I can remember, the BBC would host a serious forensic interview with all the party leaders in the course of the election campaign. It may have been Andrew Neil, previously Evan Davis, previously Jeremy Paxman, and others. So this was an established thing that happened and was seen as valuable, and everyone accepted that in an unwritten rule. So... We went into that election on the basis that's what would happen again. You're head of political programming at the BBC at this point. Uh, yeah, head of live political programs at the BBC. That was the assumption we all made. Now, the, the way that those things ever come together, they never come together in such a way that you, everyone sits down and agrees a date and then you go from there. If you tried that, you wouldn't, they would never happen. They have to, you have to do them as you get them. And until this point, everyone had honoured that unwritten kind of commitment to the norms. And so that was how I proceeded. So I was negotiating specifically on that point with the parties about this particular programme. At no point did I tell anybody that we had absolute cast iron agreement from others. If I'd been told from by, by Boris Johnson or anyone else that he wasn't going to do it, I would have told people that we had a clear rejection. Instead, we had negotiations that were ongoing. And that's the basis on which it works. And so on that basis, as far as I knew at the time, Jeremy Corbyn agreed to do the show at the end of November. So in other words, I was pretty confident that while I said, look, the plan is to do this, I'd certainly never said anything that gave them a false impression. And then, of course, he does the interview. It's a car crash for him. And then it's evident, it becomes evident that Boris Johnson was never going to do the interview and doesn't. And that plays out in a painful way for us at the BBC and for Labour in a sense as well. So it was very unfortunate. But I, as far as I was aware, I knew that I was being straight up about what happened. It turns out now, maybe things were a bit different. And this comes from conversations I've had with Seamus Milne, who was then 
I always forget they had quite convoluted job titles. So he wasn't actually the director of communications. He had, he had I think it may have been and strategy. But he was the chief comms yeah, person. He was on the, the Corbyn team. team. He was. Although Angela Singh, as I had, was the person that was I was dealing with largely, and I think most BBC people were. So anyway, what it turns out from that, I've seen contemporaneous WhatsApp messages and text messages between Seamus and other senior Labour people, clearly demonstrating their firm impression from meetings they'd had with people at the BBC that this interview with Boris Johnson was confirmed. A whole package of shows had been spoken about and were agreed on the basis that everybody had agreed to do them. And these are taking place in, in a broader conversation about, about the election. And it seems clear from what I've seen and the conversations I've had that they were given a very firm impression. They were told that Boris Johnson had agreed. Now, why were they told that? There's two possible explanations. One is that Boris Johnson's people told the BBC that they had agreed to it, even though they hadn't. As far as I was aware at the time, that had never happened. They'd never actually said no. They just said, we need to talk about dates and we can work on this. But maybe they had, and maybe that was why that happened. Or the alternative, more pa more painful and damaging possibility is that some BBC executives said that knowing it wasn't actually true, but were unequivocal about the fact of it. So in, a, in any case, that was the information. Those were the assurances that were required by the Labour Party to go ahead and put Corbyn up to be interviewed by Andrew Neil. So I can't solve the mystery of that, but it does suggest that there is a possible out a possible explanation or two that is quite troubling. Either way, though, the expectation was very much that Boris Johnson, as somebody as the Prime Minister and also running for election, would take part in that interview. And he and his team made the decision that they didn't need to and they didn't owe the public mm -hmm. that level of scrutiny, Correct. which at that point was unprecedented. Absolutely right. And also, crucially, they were very keen to maintain the, the impression that they were engaging and that they were serious about it until after Jeremy Corbyn had done that mm. interview after which time the pretense was dropped slightly. And actually, Dominic Cummings, in one of his wonderful tweets, has, has been, he said something like, I think it's, uh, you're reaching for the book, I think it's there. I'm not sure if we can swear on this podcast. Why the fuck would we put a gaff machine clueless about policy and government up to be grilled for ages? This is not a hard decision. Yes, so that's quite a contrast from, we want to make it work, we're thinking about it, we're going to do this, I just need to sort of date out. It clearly, from the beginning, there was no intention to do it. There's a complete contempt for the electorate, for the BBC, for the process, for the norms. And I suppose maybe it was naive of us to think that Boris Johnson and the norms went together because it was his style. So it was depressing and unfair. And so we ended up doing what was the monologue. So Andrew Neil went on to the telly and offered people a, a flavour of what we would have asked him and what we were going to ask about trust. And I wonder how that all panned out. We might have been onto something when we did that. So it's an un unhappy event. And I think I'd like to know really what happened, but I can't reconstruct all of it. Who said what to whom? I don't know. There's a lot in there about the BBC, its unique role, the unique pressures that it is under because of its funding model and because of the amount of scrutiny it gets. And it feels like you've got a little bit of a love-hate relationship towards it, especially towards the end with some of the developments that happen. Are you worried about the direction that the BBC is going in or has gone in or the future of it? Yeah, first of all, I just want to emphasise that the main reason for that worry is to do with the way the government have behaved in terms of the funding of the BBC, freezing the licence fee, piling on extra commitments, all those sorts of things have had a very serious effect on the output and on, and on the 
the experience and the, the personnel, the, the quality of the personnel, bad decisions get made. So those are the real reasons why there's been a problem. The other thing I highlight, which I think is in that context, which is it's always been a problem, which has been the BBC is this, their paymasters are the people that they're trying to cover. So there's always a temptation for that reason. And also just because the government are the people who can offer exclusives and big interviews and all that sort of stuff to pay more attention to their concerns and perhaps reflecting coverage, their worries than anybody else. And it's a sort of like an incumbency bias, which I think is real. And I think that's only got worse because of the precarious relationship between the BBC and the current government and the risk, the sort of existential risk to the future of the BBC, particularly when you know, Nadine Dorries was the culture secretary and the kind of things she was saying. We don't, know what, we don't know what the current iteration of conservative government will, where they'll go on this, but they're obviously looking at the funding model as well. So the funding model is up for grabs. And the outcome on air is, I think we've seen it in the, the news channel and all these things, that all, the, the cuts are being felt, they're real, the output. And then, of course, everyone's up in arms. The government, Sorry, it's a bugbear, but when there is an announcement of a service being cut, you have Conservative MPs complaining about this when you wonder who were the people who made the decision to cut the funding. So it's just inevitable, like night follows day. So I, I think you're not paying attention if you're not worried. After the break, we'll discuss the brief but eventful premiership of Liz Truss. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman podcast, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. It's available for both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. Subscribe to the New Statesman from just £1 a week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast dash offer. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You sort of also talk about the exodus of talent. Mm. Andrew Neil, obviously no longer at the BBC, brief stint on GB News, now Channel 4, yeah. Andrew Marr on LBC and also our political editor here at the New Statesman, yeah. Emily Maitlis and John Sopel and Lewis Goodall doing their podcast, The News Agents. There are probably others as well. Yeah, and also you're probably missing the all the people, you wouldn't know necessarily, but all the people who are the... You, know, you talk about long-form interviews. I don't know there's many people in the building anymore who know how to do them. Uh, most of the people I was working with have gone. And you obviously are no longer. I'm no longer there. If you end up, what, they've, what the structure they've imposed, it's, quite, it's maybe too technical, but you end up with more junior people taking more responsibility without much guidance or kind of anyone to talk to really about it, apart from someone who's got control over a huge swathe of programming. You worry that there's going to be something will go wrong at some point with that, but certainly the quality will dip. You're now at Sky, Mm -hmm. working on Beth Rigby's show. How's that? Do you think that Sky, which obviously working with a different set of parameters than the BBC, is picking up where the BBC left off? One thing that we're doing on the Beth Rigby show is committing ourselves to long interviews. This, this, This is the really important thing that I want to say about the book, and it may be a forlorn hope, but that people need to realise 
what would they lose when they lose we lose this culture of long form forensic interviews they are the best way we have they're better than debates on telly which are all pyrotechnics they're better than parliamentary sort of set pieces or pmqs they're the best way to find out if the person that wants to be powerful or the people that are in power in their general different ministries and doing important things that affect your life are in terms of their character their, their aptitude the what, wisdom or otherwise of their policies that's the best form okay if we throw it out the window, which is what's happened by the BBC, which is extraordinary from a public service broadcaster, then we lose something. And I think what we've been trying to do with Beth is try and keep that flame alive. We've done long interviews with Jeremy Hunt after the, after the initial autumn statement, which was fascinating because he seemed to become a, new, a newborn tear. He, he wouldn't acknowledge that there were any economic downsides to, to Brexit. It's extraordinary. Not only that, he said, I've always thought that the economics of Brexit were fine. I know, I've just, it took me like two minutes to find a tweet where he says we'll be clobbered yeah because he was a very passionate remainer yeah it's just it's insulting to our intelligence which is a shame because i think jeremy hunt is one of those politicians in in who doesn't tend to be like that so i thought that was depressing again it was revealed because it went on for a long time and he was like can we move on for brexit now we will when we finish the questions on that and that's only going to happen if you really commit to the time and commit to the seriousness so that's what we're trying to do so yeah the, B- the bbc aren't they aren't we will do you think that the Boris Johnson era broke something when it comes to the way politicians feel they need to engage with the media? And we talked a lot on the New Statesman and elsewhere about social media and soundbite culture and politicians just wanting to get their clip that they know will go viral. After Boris Johnson, we had Liz Truss, who was one of the most disastrous but, political interviewees. But yeah, that's a really... I'm glad you mentioned it because it, it's almost like we can forget this. We, we should remember Liz Truss. We should. We, and it was brief, but it was eventful. But the there, there's your clue, OK? We said with Johnson. She did one long interview, I think, with Nick Robinson in which she got into some trouble. And then for the rest of that campaign, she... Silence. Silence, right? This is just extraordinary because I talked about Mrs Thatcher, who she likes to sort of dress up as, right? And... She was. She believed that she had to sell what was a vision that was quite a change, right? A bit like Liz Truss's vision. If Liz Truss wanted to take the country with her, whatever you think of the wisdom of it, she could have said, look, this is what I believe. It might be painful in the short term, but it's the way to get out of this hole that we continually find ourselves in. I'm going to make the argument, it'll be tough, but come with me, all right? And she complained after coming falling out of office that she never had the chance really to get a fair crack of the whip. But she never came on to any programmes to tell the country what she believed. She just tried to get away with the bare minimum and tell Hustings audiences of Tories what she thought and not face any serious scrutiny because they're not that environment. So that's why it's so important. It actually has an effect on we had a, a people's mortgages and things. It, this is a safeguard that we had, which is a, a culture of proper scrutiny. And so it's gone. I forget what the question was now, but I interrupted you, I think. Sorry about that. <laughs> now, I was going to ask if you have hope for the future that politicians will remember that they do need to be accountable in this way and that journalists will get the power of political interviews back. I mean, Sunak does them. Yeah. Starmer does them, did a very tough one with Beth Rigby yeah. recently. Are you optimistic or has something been fundamentally broken by Boris Johnson? Well, actually, I talked to Emily Maitlis for the book and she says that she thinks that maybe, just maybe, he didn't destroy everything in the way that we feared and that maybe we've moved beyond the Johnson era. So I sort of think we have to be hopeful because I do think it's true that notwithstanding the fact that some things like the Jeremy Hunt interview that took place under the Sunak government, which was was not exactly 
straightforward and honest. It did happen. He did submit himself to it. I think that Sunak is a return. I think it's one thing. There is a return to some of the norms with the Sunak government. He appears to be governing the country a bit rather than doing whatever they were doing before. There seems to be more purpose and, and a more traditional approach. And I think also Keir Starmer seems to me to be committed to giving people, exposing himself to that kind of scrutiny. So I think that is optimistic. I, I suspect that people, some people, and Andrew Neil think it's gone now. We won't get that interview back in the next general election because it's been seen that it doesn't have to happen because of what Boris did. But Rishi, if you're listening, you know, you need to do it. And I think you should. And I don't think we have to, we can just put all that Boris Johnson stuff aside and move on. So I'm hoping that's what will happen. Final question. Favourite political interview of all time? My favourite political interview? Yeah. There's only, there's just only one winner. It's 1989 Thatcher Malden. <laughs> I've written sort of two, at least two chapters on it in that book, maybe two and a half. It is the most, it's my favourite moment. You've made me want to go and watch it now. So yeah, you should, It's on YouTube, you can see it. It's pure drama, especially if you read the book, understand the drama, it will bring it even more to life. Rob Burley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my guest, Rob Burley, author of Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying To Me? We'll be back on Thursday discussing the week in politics. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also find all our video content on the New Statesman YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Adrian Bradley.